0: Hey Don.
1: Hello Zach.
0: There is a professor out there named Roger L. Martin and he has been promoting the idea of being less efficient. He's concerned that businesses, government, a lot of parts of our society are being too efficient, and it's having some major consequences that we as society need to think about. Here's the best paragraph I read. The worlds of both economics and business have adopted the view that without a simplifying unitary objective, an organization will be unable to make robust, consistent, and societally optimal decisions. Luminaries, such as economics Nobel laureate Milton Friedman and superstar finance professor Michael Jensen have made the argument so convincingly that it has effectively become embedded doctrine. There should be a unitary objective whereby more is always better. This is why the implicit rule in most incentive systems is that selling more is better, always. At Sears Auto Centers in the 1990s, more repairs per customer was better, with no upper bound. At Wells Fargo in the 2000s, more accounts opened was better, with no upper bound. With no balance consideration evident, employees followed the rule to such extremes that they created existential reputational threats for their organizations. Both companies apologized and agreed to settlements. In energy, more proven and probable reserves is always better, so we get dangerous drilling and relatively unlimited hydraulic fracturing. In managing labor costs, greater labor cost efficiency is always better, so there is limitless outsourcing of jobs to low cost jurisdictions. In antitrust policy, more short-term efficiency is always better. So mergers are now enabled by the efficiency defense. As part of the Washington consensus, more deregulation and fiscal austerity is always better. So countries engage in deregulation and austerity to comply. In the healthcare system, more efficient use of working capital is always better. So minimizing buffer stocks of personal protective equipment made all sorts of sense Until a pandemic hit. And Don, this guy's done other interviews. He's kind of been all over. He's promoting a new book. And it's just kind of interesting what he's talking about. Why are we so obsessed with efficiency? And maybe we are missing bigger pictures and we should be thinking about as a society. What did you think?
1: I had a little bit of melancholy relationship with this article because I really love efficiency. But when I think about efficiency, it doesn't just mean that things are more efficient. It means that it changes the way people consume things. I remember reading an article in The New Yorker a while back that said that efficiency is the antithesis of conservation. Because if you make it more efficient, people just use it more. So if you make a more efficient car, people just drive further. Better roads, people live further away and commute further to the big city. It's not the intended consequence. It's not what really happens.
0: To be clear, it's not like he's saying capitalism is bad. It's not like he's saying making a profit is bad. I think instead what he's saying is, what are the externalities? What are the unknowns if a company or a government or a society just continues to seek one certain objective for themselves? What are the things that they're leaving behind? And as we're seeing right now, we're seeing a country that wasn't prepared for the pandemic, right? Because we decided long ago, eh, we're probably never gonna have a pandemic. Why do we need to have stockpiles of ventilators or PPE gear? And then all of a sudden a pandemic hits and we are not ready for it. And is it possible that we should have been spending some more of our government resources getting ready for events like that?
1: Well, and we had all the things that we needed for this pandemic. The government was had it maintained, had a stockpile. And then about three years ago, when the Trump administration came into office, they dropped the ball on recertifying and making sure this stuff was up to date. And it lapsed, and it was no longer current, no longer working. And that hurt us. I mean, also, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about a company in Texas that makes masks. And they started making masks back when the... Uh, the other flu came up, the H1N1, or the one before that, the bird flu, and people stopped buying from him. He couldn't sell any masks because they were all going to the Chinese because they were just a touch cheaper. And when you have a giant organization pursuing the lowest cost possible, they went to China and he couldn't sell them. And now he's, of course, making them like crazy, but it's higher cost because it's in America. But again, this is the single-minded pursuit of efficiency, Or actually what he talks about in the article, just as much of efficiency is simplicity, that it's just easy and simple and you go with efficiency and that's what you do and that's how you run your business.
0: Instead of just looking at one thing as your bottom line, you need to be thinking about a lot of things. As you just kind of said in that example of we didn't have any places really making PPE gear. The first month and a half, two months of the pandemic, it was Etsy that was blowing up, selling over almost $200 million, I think, in masks, because you just had people in their houses who were sewing masks and selling them online because you couldn't get them anywhere. And it just kind of made you realize sort of how vulnerable we were in that sort of aspect of just PPE gear. But then you just think about how a lot of our manufacturing, a lot of our productivity happens now in East Asian countries and China, to we make a lot of our microchips, where we make a lot of our parts, a lot of our furniture, a lot of our t-shirts. And you start to wonder, have we outsourced too much? It seems like our government is starting to have a conversation about maybe reshoring some of these things, but it was always just that idea of shareholders, Wall Street, people want a return on their investment and how can we cut costs this year? Well, can we, can we lower the labor costs, right? Just a little bit more, but at what point do you so bring yourself to one side that you are really vulnerable now to an unforeseen event absolutely and i
1: think the dependency on china was saw, was understood before the pandemic hit because when trump, president trump has battle against china and the dependency of china of american manufacturers on china i remember reading that if apple wanted to move their production to vietnam they would need every single person in Vietnam to be making Apple products in order to have enough people to make them. And that's just not feasible. You can't just put it, switch it over. We've become very dependent on it. The article I read really went back to Nike. Nike is one of the first ones that thought, hey, we can make these shoes by whatever labor we can hire, child, old man, man, woman, whatever, and we can lower our costs and increase our profits. And Everybody followed that script because of the single-minded pursuit of cheap. Now, perhaps we're reconsidering, but the more and more I think about AI, advanced intelligence, and we can bring these factories back, they're just not going to have any workers in them. It's just going to be all machines. Can't machines bring it just back here and they'll have dark rooms in rural North Carolina where they pump out shoes or whatever?
0: That's a great question. And of course, the the counter to all of this is Americans don't want to buy more expensive shoes, or, you know, that wage rate's got to get fixed into the price of a good, right? People want the cheapest possible good. And that's something that anybody can understand that goes to a story. Prices are definitely a signal to how people behave and stuff like that. I could see where people want to pay the cheapest possible prices and therefore will reshoring work. The one thing I found very interesting the Trump administration, since the beginning of their administration, and even the Democratic Congress with them, there seems to have been a very sole and steady and consistent focus on China. I realize that we've been increasing, decreasing tariffs, but the attack on China and the attack on trying to reshore manufacturing has been something that I've been seeing consistently. It's something that I've found very interesting from kind of an erratic administration that seems to be jumping their policies all the time. They have really stayed very focused on this issue. And I do wonder if it's something that 10, 20 years from now, we are gonna see a lot more American companies building back on shore. Now, the question, of course, is how many workers will they be hiring or will it be all machines that they're using?
1: Yeah, this administration has really pursued China. And I've read a lot about this, and it's not something I necessarily disagree with. They are a growing power. They are a disruptor. And perhaps we need to be less dependent on them and more focused on doing things ourselves, especially when we realize that most of our medicines, in addition to our PPE, are made in China. So there's a lot of factors that really surge for this growth to bring it back to the United States. But to your earlier point, do American consumers want to pay more for something made in America? And I don't think they do. For years, I've asked my students when we talked about globalization, whether our school store at the high school where I teach should have just American-made products. And the kids said, sure. And I say, they would cost two to three times more. And the kids say, no. And I said, wouldn't you rather have, you have probably have eight sweatshirts at home, wouldn't you rather have two that are made in America and really high quality rather than eight that are made in China? And the kid said, no, I'd rather have the eight. That's okay. American consumers are not willing to pay more. Now, if we can get AI to make them in rural wherever, absolutely. If the price is competitive, I think we'll be willing to do it. But that's far from the case at the moment.
0: Well, it's interesting because 20 years ago when we had the rise of Walmart and the decline of Main Street and people were like, look, like, you know, if you shop at Walmart, then you're going to end up working at Walmart. And people were very upset that local businesses were closing. And sort of the other side of that was, well, hey, like Walmart, I mean, if you want to take a product back, like you just take it back and they just instantly don't ask you any questions. And it's really simple. It's it's a cheaper price. Back in the old days, like if you went to a local hardware store and you wanted to take back a hammer that you didn't end up wanting, it might have been a hassle. You might have been looked at weird. And so these large companies got really good at certain things. And as you were saying, there is a segment of our population that likes to shop local. They like to support the local business. And I think that's a nice sentiment to have. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are price conscious and you can't blame them. I mean, I'm a pretty price conscious guy. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I'll probably buy whatever's cheaper. And I probably won't think a whole lot about what I'm buying. I guess in the end, like, does it make me a bad person or does it just make me a rational actor? I don't know. I want to
1: say it makes you a rational actor. Maybe it makes you a bad person because I'm the exact same way. I'm buying things that are inexpensive because they're on Amazon and because I don't have to go anywhere because I know it costs 50 cents per mile to drive my car when you have total depreciation and everything like that. If I can just stay at home and order it, it'd be great. And I know I can get a pretty good price because I can compare prices. And so it makes me a rational actor. Now, I like to say to myself, "I'm my income is still the same. I'm still spending all the money. We're not saving that much. And so if I'm spending it anyway, some of it's going to be spent locally. Maybe I save money online shopping on Amazon so I can spend it locally at restaurants. Can I feel good about that?
0: I think so. I think you can always have that cognitive dissonance, right, to say, hey, like, I don't do this, but I do shop here. And therefore, it all ends up even in the end, right? And I think that's not a bad way to think about it. One of the things that I sort of wrote down as I was reading these articles and thinking about it is, it's hard for me to kind of totally square myself with how I feel about this article in that I'm somebody who owns some stock and I'm somebody that gets excited when I see my stock prices increase. And that's usually because their earnings per share is increasing. And usually there's two ways for companies to grow. They can either grow their earnings per share by having more revenue, which a lot of companies are always looking for a new way to have more revenue or by cutting costs, which again, that impacts workers. Or that means you're going to send your factory overseas And so I would like to get a return on my investment. Does it make me a bad person to think like that? At the same time, I was thinking about it from another standpoint of the oil companies. Over the last five to 10 years, America has quietly become oil independent. We've got oil everywhere now. In fact, we have so much oil and with the pandemic, the the price of oil is down to like $30 a barrel and your large juggernaut companies like Chevron, Exxon and others are now struggling as businesses. It's not like they're going out of business anytime soon, although a lot of smaller oil companies are. But just last week, Exxon was announcing that over 10,000 jobs are going to get cut now. Oil used to be a large part of our economy and it's now shrinking. And one of the things I was thinking about is why haven't these companies been investing more and talking more about renewable energy? And I'm not saying that they can't make oil, but Are they ready to pivot because the cost of wind, the cost of solar power now has depreciated so low that it's now cheaper sometimes to use those sources of energy than to go drill for more oil. And I just wonder if those companies were solely focused on just finding more oil and drilling it, that they totally have mismanaged themselves, that do they have a relevant future? I mean, 10 years ago, Exxon was the largest company in the S&P 500. Now it's maybe in the top 100. And where does that go for them? Should they be thinking about Mr. Martin's lessons here?
1: Well, I think that illustrates the exact point that you're making. So ExxonMobil's fallen in price by a lot, which means their dividend yield has risen because they haven't reduced their dividend. Dividend, for people that don't know, is the cash payment of shareholders' profits, the profits that you're due as a shareholder from the corporation. And so ExxonMobil is paying the same dividend right now which means it's 10% of the share of the stock. So this stock you could buy and get 10% of your money back without ever counting on the stock going up in value. And it's, again, the single-minded pursuit of shareholder value. And how do we make our shareholders value this company? They're laying off their workers. They're even selling some of their reserves. And they still are focused on making the shareholders happy. And that simple one single belief is to their detriment. Yes, they're going to exist in 10 years because people are still going to need jet fuel. They're going to need fuel for their boats and fuel for ships that go across the world and things like that. But in 2024, electric cars are cheaper than gasoline cars. That's the tipping point. Their demand is going to fall. They're still going to be a company, but it's going to be a much smaller company and certainly not as profitable.
0: And therein lies an idea that I remember reading about a couple of years ago called the innovator's dilemma. The point being that if you're a business and you are making a product and you're making a lot of money, what do you do for your next act? If all of a sudden your research and development office comes up with a new product, do you start to promote that product knowing that the new product might take away from the old product? And the classic example they give is that Kodak actually back in the 60s or the 70s had developed the first digital camera technology. But the board at Kodak and the decision makers said, we're going to basically kill this project. We're going to hide this technology because we make a ton of money with this film. We don't want this because it will hurt our film business. And obviously now at this point, Kodak is just kind of this lost company. Nobody takes film-based photos anymore. Somebody else ended up making a lot of money on digital cameras and stuff like that. Apple is really good at cannibalizing themselves right they came out with the ipod well eventually they were like hey let's make these phones now somebody might have said look if we make iphones we're going to sell less ipods and we're not going to be profitable and apple said it's better to eat ourselves and get bigger that way than to let somebody else come up with the next technology it's really difficult. It's interesting to see that oil companies have just continued the single-minded pursuit of just oil instead of investing themselves. And I know that Exxon's like growing green algae in a bathtub, and someday that <laughs> might be energy because they love to have that commercial. But it's not making them any money right now, and it's more to just kind of appease, you know, Greenpeace or some like green organization than to actually make profits. And I just think that's interesting. I think it's a lesson.
1: The Kodak story is a very interesting one because they, like you said, they had all the technology, they had all the ability and Polaroid was right there too. And they both sat on it. And let's think back, what was Apple before iPhones and iPods? It was a computer company. It's a pretty big jump to go from a computer company to a phone company and a camera company. Oh wait, Kodak could have made that jump just as easily if they had better leadership, but they didn't. And they just sat there and watched it eat themselves up. And now, like you said, it's nothing. Rochester, New York was a thriving metropolis based upon billions of dollars coming into Kodak, which is all for naught now. It's still a pretty area, but there's not a real profitable business. They just sat on it and watched it erode beneath them. And Apple is very, very good at this. There are other companies that are good at this. But there's other things we've seen too. They're not alone, Kodak. Sony had the best uh, personal music thing. You and I had, I'm sure, Walkman growing up. And where did that go? Well, nothing. Sony didn't do anything with it. Apple ate all their dinner before them. Looking for the next thing is an important one. That said, asking Exxon to jump into energy in solar and and wind is a little bit different. That's General Electric, baby. That's turbine companies that are in
0: in that radar. Right. And it's not easy. And and sometimes you have companies that just can't, pivot right they can't see it or they can't get the the agreement within their organization to move forward on these sorts of projects and that's why i just think this is the argument is just really interesting and nuanced in that he's just saying it's okay to like go out and and to keep trying to grow but the world is more complex than just looking for a singular focus and if you're not thinking about more issues then it could catch up with you and i I was just kind of thinking like look History from individuals, companies to civilizations is all about growth. It's all about expansion. And ultimately, it's all about efficiency. Usually what we see in history is that once people stop growing, that's when you start to stagnate and then you start to set in your decline. And so is this guy really saying, look, companies just need to always be looking for the next growth item out there. And therefore, it should be growing by, by revenue instead of by cutting cost"? I couldn't quite figure out maybe if he was trying to make a recommendation there. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think one of the easy things for a corporation to cut when they're looking at bad times is R and D and that's the last thing they cut. Cause that's your future. And if you cut your R and D, then five years, 10 years down the road, you're just stabbing yourself in the chest. That's what's easy to cut. Cause you don't see anything in the bottom line today or this year or next year. And I think corporations do that too quickly. In addition, one of the examples is talk about Sears Auto, where they were just going to get the most money from each customer and maximize that. I went to the dealership this summer because my car needed a new airbag because it had a defective airbag, and they tried to swing me for $3,000 worth of repairs. And I was like, no, this car is worth $1,000. And I ultimately, am, and with a friend, I'm going to get it fixed for 200 bucks. but they told me things that were broken that weren't even broken. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is just the same thing as the article. But wait, what are auto dealerships going to do when Tesla doesn't have auto dealerships? When you have electric vehicles, you really only need tires and brakes. And there are separate businesses that do tires and brakes. You don't need to go to a dealership. If I'm owning a dealership right now, I'm reading this article and sweating bullets because I'm realizing my single-minded pursuit of making money off of repairs, which is how car dealerships make all their money, is evaporating beneath my feet. And that's the people that should be reading this and thinking, oh my gosh, we got to figure out something, do make some changes here, or find another product or a whole new model of doing this.
0: Yeah. At the end of the day, all of that sort of bad behavior towards customers erodes your customer base, right? People start to distrust you. They start to find substitutes that again, sort of leads you to down the hole, down the problem and stuff like that. I guess I would like To see more information from this author here about how do you think about something like unions, for instance, I was just writing down some thoughts this morning and I was like, "Unions, are they good or are they bad? Like In some ways, unions, they they work to raise the wages and the benefits of their workers, which healthier workers, happier workers uh, are usually more productive. At the same time, unions can sometimes not always be the most efficient way to get things done or they make it hard for businesses to, to pivot. They might slow down some R&D or production. And therefore, how do you think you should think about that? Because at the same time, don't you want businesses to be thinking about all of their stakeholders, right? Take care of your workers. Take care of your products. That will all kind of fit together at the end of the day. Well, I
1: think unions and very much fit with the subject of this article, in that when you talk about the textile unions and fighting for textile reform because of gray lung and awful conditions, the unions in the South finally got together for safe textiles and all the jobs moved overseas. So again, looking for their single-minded pursuit of their own health, which who can blame them, they ended up losing their jobs and the same thing happened to many auto workers they seeking higher benefits better wages better retirement and ultimately it drove the jobs to other places that is uh, that's a real factor for unions a little less so I think for us as teachers because our unique position where we have well in the state of Michigan limited union power but at least it allows us to negotiate for higher wages and better working conditions, but we're not looking at alternatives. I thought for a little bit, online schooling will be an alternative. but After this experience, it seems like online schooling doesn't work for everybody or does it? Will we see more online schooling? I don't know what happens after this.
0: The idea of the single-minded pursuit of a five day a week, eight hour a day education, right? For all students, right? Isn't that how schools have always sort of operated? And yet for the first time ever now, you're seeing districts that are offering two tracks, right? The the, the virtual education and now the in-person experience. I think a lot of school districts are gonna have to be offering that for quite some time. And even once the pandemic ends, I think you're gonna have a certain slice of families that are gonna say, you know what? We've got other things we wanna do with our time. We still wanna get our education and we still demand to get it from you, but we want it virtual. And I just, I don't see it going away, right? So isn't that us now? starting to, to innovate a little bit, and maybe not pursue just one way to educate.
1: Yeah, that is a good point. The question I have is, what if your one single-minded thought is the right attitude, but is it really embodied by everybody? And I'm thinking Ford in the 90s, it was quality is job one. That was their motto, and that was everything supposedly. However, I don't really think inside the company they're thinking quality is job one. They're thinking cost minimization. And so is it the what you say you're into, or is it your inside actual focus that matters here?
0: That's a great point. I am somebody that's always been really skeptical of mission statements all organizations usually have a mission statement they're usually about total customer satisfaction or all people are gonna feel positive about us and then you realize that inside almost nobody actually knows what the mission statement is and that nobody actually begins a meeting reminding everybody of the mission statement and then pointing to whatever decisions were made and how that fits with the mission statement and yet usually mission statements try to not be so singular focused, right? Usually the mission statement has a lot of lofty rhetoric, a lot of lofty ideas about what we're going to do here in this organization. And yet, usually then we all go away from the meeting and then start to have a single-minded pursuit of something, right?
1: Yeah, it seems. It doesn't seem like it's the guiding principle. It seems like there's some inside baseball happening in the dark rooms. their uh, smoke-filled rooms in Washington where we'd like to be.
0: I remember reading an article, I can't remember where it was a while ago. And they talked about like the biggest problem with artificial intelligence is you could like tell a computer or a machine, I want you to be the best chess player in the world, go learn, figure it out how to do it on yourself, computer. And the idea or the the apocalyptic scenario is that this computer in wanting to be the best chess player just starts like destroying the earth. It decides to go and like blow up all the other computers. It decides to ruin the infrastructure, decides to kill all the humans so that it's the last thing standing so that it really is the best chess player on earth, right? It's that single-minded pursuit of something. And in some ways, isn't that the issue with like AI and with these algorithms is they pursue such a thing to such a high degree that we don't quite know what the unintended consequences are.
1: Yeah, I'm not really into the apocalyptic AI thing. I think there is going to be a place for it. And I think there's some people that are going to lose their jobs due to AI, but I'm more motivated by the fact that AI is much better at detecting skin cancer than your regular dermatologist. And that by looking at slides and looking at images that we'll be able to find that. I don't think it's going to flip the switch and then start taking out the world. I listened to a podcast with Bill Gates the other day, and the interviewer is trying to Goad him into the dangers of AI, and he said the dangers of AI are, you know, it's most of the people working on AI are excited about AI. They're not terrified. They're not trying to destroy the world. They're just trying to figure out things. So I, I'm not an I'm not an alarmist on AI, and I really have trouble seeing danger
0: there. But therein lies the issue, though. Is again single-minded pursuit, right? We like to think everybody's a good actor and and trying to put some some safes in there so that nothing bad could happen, but At the end of the day, these people are devoting their whole life to developing smarter intelligence that can learn on its own, that doesn't need humans to input any information. And I guess while we all say, no, 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 this can't happen, isn't that the same thing about, yeah, we don't really need all this PPE gear, right? We're not going to have a pandemic. Or, hey, we're going to need oil forever. Let's just keep drilling. We don't need to think about our next competitor, right? Isn't that kind of that short-mindedness that the author's kind of warning us against?
1: Yeah, I guess so. I think there is a little bit of a danger, but AI is—it's diverse. It's different tools for different things. It's not necessarily one little market that's going to take over the whole world. I think we're looking at is the goals of corporations, the goals of institutions is shouldn't be just make the most money or get the highest revenue. They should be more balanced and looking and more nuanced. It's not necessarily that AI is just the, uh, the great evil, but AI could be part of this. I mean, when you think about Google, yes, there's AI there. It's really, really good. But they're not just doing search. They're doing maps. And it turns out, oh, there's some revenue doing maps. And they're doing other things too, because that's, they're just a well-rounded institution. I think that's one where it's not the single bind in pursuit of profit, and it's turning out well for them.
0: I guess I wonder if businesses or organizations have a committee or have somebody that is always trying to think about, are we too narrowly minded in our focus, right? Are we not seeing the big picture and stuff like that? Another note I just jotted down today was feudal Japan back in like the 17, 1800s, which decided to basically close itself off from the world. It didn't want any new technology. It didn't want to trade with anybody else. It just wanted to be Japan by itself. And then 100 years later, like the Americans show up in these huge gunboats and basically are like, you're going to trade now. And Japan realized, oh, my God, the whole world has moved on. And we just tried to keep things simple for ourselves. Right. We, we didn't want to maybe pursue new trade. Or we didn't want new ideas. And yet it didn't work out so well for them." And I just always wonder. Those sort of unknown unknowns is something that I I think is kind of um, an interesting thing that it's just a good thing to remind it of.
1: Very Japanese thing to think, yeah, we've got it all figured out. You guys just stay the hell away from us. We've got got this all figured out. And then, oh, wait, we don't. Okay, there's other people coming in. And now I think the Japanese still feel like they haven't figured out. And maybe they do. They live a long time. They eat healthy. They exercise. They're passionate about things. They don't have enough kids, though. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we need to have diverse perspectives and think big think big picture. But it's a lot harder to see in the day-to-day where we are pursuing one thing. But I think the one thing can be new things, then lower cost and then better surface. It's a lot of factors that we should measure in. It's just we shouldn't measure it in one number.
0: Do you think that's the problem, though? Is it's just complex. We've kind of seen that like humans are kind of bad at like complex nuanced thinking, right? We're good at data or a piece of statistic that comes out that we can follow, right? Are the costs higher or lower than last year? Do we make more money or less money? And instead, when someone says, well, here's what we did, people's minds just start to kind of turn off.
1: If we talk about education, because that's where your and my experience is, we are told that the most important thing in a student performing well is their bond with the teacher and the relationship with the teacher. Now, do we really think it's that simple? Couldn't there be other factors like parental income, how much they have to do at home? Are they raising siblings or caring for siblings? I know I'm seeing some kids in very different situations on my Zoom meetings. Some are caring for siblings and have a baby in their arms while doing things. Others are just seemingly sitting in a palace by themselves with very good technology and a very nice chair. I mean, there's other factors at foot here. Everything is complicated. Nothing is purely simple. And if we think anything is simple or it's just one thing, then we're fooling ourselves. And I think that's the real takeaway from this article is that life is complex. There's a lot going on. People are complex. There's no one thing that bonds us or breaks us apart.
0: you bring up a good point about education and ultimately schools in our state are kind of judged by whether kids can pass low level reading and math tests pretty much, right? So where do we put a lot of our resources? You and I are judged whether or not kids can pass sort of a pre and a post test in our classes. And that definitely shows that we did something in there, but by no means do we have a metric about how many relationships did Mr. McLaughlin have, right? How many kids, walked away feeling like they had a positive experience or how many kids walked out of our, of our school district and went on to college or are living meaningful lives, right? We don't think about any of those ways to judge ourselves. It's a very narrow-minded way that we judge ourselves.
1: Well, oh, yeah, and we're evaluating by other people and how we evaluate other people. You know, do we really think that the best children in our nation go to Harvard and therefore everybody else is trash and that we should only measure them by success of getting to this best school or this test score? I mean, I've met some incredibly impressive people, and it's not necessarily because they're impressive due to their intelligence or their test score. It's about the things they accomplish and how they think. That's more what we should be measuring, but it's not a simple number, which makes it so much easier. Let's just think people just want the simple answer.
0: Right, and therein lies the issue, right? Our desire for the simple answer causes us to forget a lot of things. Mr. Martin, in, a, in an interview with Fortune Magazine last week that you sent me, he had an interesting kind of answer when they asked him, like, what are, what's a solution for all of this? Like, how should we be thinking and behaving as a society? And I'm just going to read his answer. He wrote, everybody has a role to play, but for each, it's not a terribly onerous role. For example, we all need to stop committing all of our business to a single supplier. Amazon isn't a problem, but if you buy everything from Amazon Prime, that's bad for humanity. Use your favorite supplier the most, but not exclusively. Go to the grocery store, the mall, and other shopping platforms. makers should be writing an automatic sunsetting revision period into every legislation they pass. That's an admission that we can't figure things out completely at a given moment in time, so we'll have to go back and revise it as things change. Business executives must recognize that slack is not an enemy to what be wiped out and defeated. We need to build in a sense of resilience. Educators have to stop teaching students that reductionism is a necessarily good thing and stop reducing the educational sphere into narrow silos, only to have students walk out into the real world where those silos don't exist. In other words, we have to do all sorts of little things that add up to a world that recognizes it's an interconnected, complex, adaptive system, not a machine to be perfected. What do you think about that, Don?
1: Oh, I think it's showing that being the well-rounded person is the best way to be, and that skills are not just one-dimensional, that they have many aspects. You and I have certainly met people that are incredibly intelligent, STEM-type people that can not interact with humans. And we, can, and we know people that do have that skill and the ones that do have the skill are tremendously more successful and have better careers and so forth because they can interact, because they're well-rounded, because they're personable. These are the skills that are not valued at all by our standardized tests, but are certainly valuable in real life.
0: Right. And once again, the standardized test is easy to measure. It's easy to get a benchmark about what somebody can or cannot do, I guess, but it doesn't have that nuance. I really like his comment about education and that we have these silos, right? Kids come to school. They take four or six classes a day. They go to their math class, their English language arts class, their science class or social studies class. As a society, we're always screaming about how these things are connected, but yet we don't want them to be. In fact, if anything, you and I have talked about it often, all we do is say, you need more math, right? You need to be in this silo even longer. We're going to make it even more complex. Why is it done that we don't have a quote unquote life class or applied life class where students, I guess, go to school and maybe just throughout the day, we just bring up things like Budgeting, civic engagement, household renovations, things where kids are given the problem and then maybe we go back and look at the theory, whereas all we ever do in in school, it seems like, is give kids theories and then hope that someday on their own, they'll apply them to whatever problems they see in life.
1: This is an interesting idea, and it kind of rings back to Brian Kaplan. Is education really a waste of all our time and money? Do we already know who the successful people are? Or is it that they spend four years in college kind of bantering about some ideas, and that's what makes them valuable? Maybe that's why college graduates make more money, because they've had this time to kind of season and think about and bat about these ideas in elite spheres.
0: Yeah, I think Kaplan, in the case against education... I think what he thought was that school in its current setup where we have these silos and we just tell these kids these, all these theories and archaic words, that's a waste of time. I think he's like, look, we have the time. We should be doing something else. We should be pursuing complexity or nuance with kids, and we should be trying to set them up. It's just that it's so hard to define, I guess, exactly what all that is, right?
1: Absolutely and it's hard to measure, it's hard to define, it's complicated, which again is back to the point of the article. People want simple. It's simple to say, can you do a phase change? Do you know how many moles of this turns into how many liters of that? Like it all is measurable. The things that are not measurable are much harder. Or maybe it is, we measure them by getting through the other barriers that we set up. Getting your application in on time, getting that paid. Or is that just a measurement of wealth?
0: I think I do buy this guy's argument. I, I think I, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm just not quite sure if his solution is a good one. I mean, ultimately, what if I said, well, Don, last week I shopped at Walmart, Amazon, and Costco. Am I spreading it around enough? Do you think to uh, make sure that I'm, I'm I'm taking care of all the nuances?
1: Well, I think it's just it's a cultural shift. Because think of it th- from this angle. Hey, I am Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. We're not so worried about profits this year because we're consumer, our consumer satisfaction is rising and our revenue's down, our profits are down, but our consumers are really satisfied and we have uh, employees, we've given them all a raise and they're much happier with their life-work balance because we're allowing them work four days a week. Would that go over well with stockholders?
0: I don't know. I, I bet you no. Know. Unless somehow Diamond could connect it back to, because we've met all those metrics, the stock price will rise. And I think some companies are given a little bit more of a benefit of a doubt like that. And then other companies are given zero benefit of the doubt for something like that.
1: Oh, yeah. And it would have to be a pretty profitable company to have the ability to say, yeah, you have all this opportunities to make these changes but that's not the way things are going people are working more now that they're working from home they're commuting less but they're working more it's not going this direction
0: at the end of the day you know he talks in another interview about the consequences of something like this of if our if our country and our businesses are always in pursuit of more profit or one objective and that means shortchanging workers or or leaving more and more people on the sideline his kind of just argument is that this is how you get to more and more people maybe looking for different types of governments. You know, he says a stagnant middle class is a big, big economic problem. The last time we had a middle class stagnation like this was the Great Depression. And at that time, a good chunk of the developed world became communist fascists or socialists. When the system doesn't work for the median family, we get a blow it up situation as we've seen with many elections globally in the last few years. And that's kind of that talk about, you know, the rise of populism and people not happy, right, and wanting extreme views and extreme things to take uh, hold. And in a functioning democracy, you need at least 51% of the people to still believe in the idea of choosing your leaders and, and thinking the system works for them, right?
1: Well, and I think a little bit that is Trump who is saying that you're getting screwed and this is the system is rigged and you should vote for me because I'll fix it. Although he's not really fixing it, but that's what he's playing to. And the increasing millennials who are willing to think that socialism is an okay thing or a good thing, whereas boomers think are terrified by it. So there is that aspect. I just, like we said the other week or two ago, I don't think people are in the streets with their pitchforks about income inequality. They're there about racial justice, but people are just screening themselves to death. They have tons of opportunities to keep entertained. They don't need to take to the streets, and they don't really care that much about the extra 50,000. And by the way, aren't there open jobs all over the place? I think so. Um, Our unemployment rate is really, really low. We're in desperate need of many people. And it's not necessarily the high skilled people that we need as we need those, but there's other jobs that are low skill. Some of them that are really high paying. We can't find people to do those, to be plumbers, to be, not that plumbing is really low skill, but it's a lower entry point than becoming a physicist. And they're out there. People could make it if they wanted.
0: At the same time, I do think some of the job openings that are there and some of the jobs that are not there are also in a highly service-based economy with the pandemic. Maybe some people don't feel safe going back to work or, you know, struggle with trying to figure out how they can make it work with their kids being home, uh, going to homeschool and trying to have childcare. Obviously, this is just a very extraordinary time, but the time also just shows that as a nation, we just sort of never had this one on our radar, right? And all of a sudden, here we are trying to, to make up for it and stuff like that.
1: We're making it. If this thing ends by September, as I assume it will.
0: September we, of next year.
1: September of next year. Now, okay. this is it, we're, we're into November now. So if I, when it ends by September, I think we make it and we look back and say, wow, that was a rough 18 months, but we're through that. And it looks like them from the market aspect, we're getting through it. It looks like from the unemployment rate, which is recovering, we're getting through it. I maybe think we're getting through it with, of course, some groups hurting tremendously if they are actors or actresses or waiters or waitresses or, you know, some demographics, but it seems like we're getting through
0: it. Well, here's what will be interesting though, is I agree with you. I, I do think we will get through this. I'm not sure if I've got a timeline yet, but one of the things is, is all of the unknown unknowns, right? We know now that certain businesses might allow their employees to work from home all the time or at least part of the time, right? So what now happens to all of these commercial buildings and stuff like that that we had? And you could say it's a good thing that people are working from home. Or you could say, look, there's a whole other segment of the economy that's really going to struggle from this. And you could say it's an efficiency making thing. And I also just feel like efficiency seems like it's kind of a normal thing. It's kind of a pushback against this guy's argument is if you're not cutting the fat, if you're not looking at areas where there's some bloat, then how is that also uh, a good thing as well? I guess maybe he's just saying be cautious as you look to make reductions.
1: Just don't look for efficiency alone, I think is what he's saying, and that there's other things to be gained and other things to pay attention to.
0: Final question I've just got for you is, where do you think today in our society, humans are being the most maybe narrow-minded, where we're single-minded pursuit. Where do you see it in society where maybe it's gonna come back to bite us at some point.
1: I would say the teenagers that we talked about last week who are pursuing college sports or academics at the expense of everything else. I think you could say it's the corporate structure with the only focus on profits and shareholder value. Those are the two places I'm going. What do you think?
0: The thing I wrote down was social media in terms of, it seems like we have a lot of our time spent now making more apps, more ways for us to communicate but I'm also concerned that like, what are we communicating about? Or what does this do maybe to our ability to focus long-term attention, think long-term instead of just get into the day-to-day Twitter battles is somebody thinking about not having the single-minded pursuit, right? Patience. And I just kind of wonder if that's where we've really continued to put a lot of our eggs and yet maybe that's gonna be a problem.
1: I am a massive hater of screen time as it's well-documented. We went to the Marvel exhibits at the Henry Ford and they were talking about how parents wouldn't let their kids look at comic books because they're destroying America because they're destroying the kids' brains. That's the same thing they said about movies and radio and TV and internet and, 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 and. Can this just be another and?
0: Totally. I definitely don't want to be the old guy that just says this is the bad thing for teens. It could definitely be an and, but I would say it seems like You know, the ping of the phone and the dopamine hit you get in your brain maybe seems more immediate than a comic book or a movie or a TV show in a way that maybe we still haven't, you know, seen yet. And I'm just always amazed at TikTok. It seems like that just sort of showed up over the last year and now seems to be the next way to grab people's attention. And I'm not here to say that that's a bad thing, but everything just seems to get shorter and uh, sillier and less attention focused, I guess. And maybe I am now just sounding old and crotchety.
1: Well, there's two ways. I could think of this on one side and say people are getting a tremendous amount of enjoyment for zero cost and they're finding their niche of their group of uh, K-Rock or whatever. Or the other way of thinking it is to be really worried and think, wait, this generation of teenagers is the safest generation of teenagers everywhere ever because they don't date, they don't do drugs, they don't do alcohol and they don't drive. So what are they doing?
0: That's a good point. And yet you could also say if the single-minded pursuit over the last parenting generation was keeping their kids safe and keeping them away from all of those things you just mentioned, what is the fallback then for that, right? Kids that are more anxious. We've talked about that in a previous podcast. Kids that are afraid to leave the nest. Kids that don't stand up for themselves and therefore maybe struggle with with risk management as they get older.
1: Only time will tell. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Well, this was an interesting one, Don, and um, I guess we'll have to kind of keep watching it. I'm, I'm sure as we're working through the pandemic and as we continue to watch companies in the news, we're going to be thinking a lot about this kind of topic of, are they thinking big picture, long range, or is it just a single-minded pursuit? It's kind of an interesting uh, concept. Absolutely. Well, Don, it was a pleasure to talk with you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. It sounds good. Keep reading. All right. Take care. Bye.